This is Songwriter, the podcast that turns stories into songs. My name is Ben Arthur. Today's episode features a brand new song from Kelly McRae, written in response to a story from an old friend of the podcast. Yeah, hi, Mary Gaucher here, and this is my second time on the show. Um, I guess it was maybe a little over a year ago we did one of these uh, with an original song I wrote inspired by a book I read uh, written by Odie Lindsay called Some Go Home, a wonderful book. And I love the song so much I put it on my new record. It was a great, great opportunity to, to dig into that book and find that voice of that character in my own work. I told Mary how completely thrilled I am that the show had helped bring a song that she loves into the world. It did. It, it did bring me a, uh, a song that, that I love so much that I play it every show and I, I put it on uh, my newest release. So there you go. Today, though, Mary is taking the other side of the table to talk about her book, Saved by a Song. Like all of Mary's writing, the book is almost shockingly honest, speaking openly not just about her artistic practice, but her history as an orphan and her early struggles with drugs and alcohol. The opening scene of the book is me getting pulled over, opening night of uh, my second restaurant. I was drinking, I was celebrating, I was drunk, I shouldn't have been driving, and uh, ended up in handcuffs in a holding cell. Uh, and I, I think I had a moment of clarity in that holding cell in between being passed out on the floor and being kicked awake by a female cop for a body search. And that moment of clarity was, I think, grace, where I saw the truth. And the truth was I had a serious problem and I needed to deal with it. I did get sober and I have stayed sober. I'm 32 years sober now. It is through her sobriety that Mary finds music and begins playing her songs, eventually touring all over the country. And it is while playing a show in New Orleans that Mary gets an unexpected visit from her past. I played in New Orleans uh, where I was uh, born and the people at the show said, you know, St. Vincent's is still there. You want to go see it? imagined it was a real place. I mean, when you're adopted, the story you're told uh, becomes like a Disney movie. It's right up there with Bambi and, I don't know, Cinderella. So it's a fictional, non-real, smoky story that is not grounded and and rooted in experience. So I never imagined going to St. Vincent's. Why would I? It's just a story I, I was told. And, and so when I found myself there, it all got very, very, very real. And it was shocking to me that on the front of the building, it said St. Vincent's Women and Infants Asylum. Just the word asylum. Gosh, you know, I, I, I never really fully conceptualized my birth mother as a human being. But when I walked through that front door, it suddenly hit me that that was the door she walked through while she was carrying me. And that's the door she walked out of and never came back after I was born.
my age were, adoptees my age were told, your mother loved you so much she gave you away. And I suppose people still tell adopted kids that, but it doesn't make sense. It, it not, not really. Through her research, Mary was actually able to find a picture of herself as an infant at St. Vincent's. You can see it and other pictures at the Songwriter Podcast Instagram. Yeah, they ran a cutesy little photo in the New Orleans, New Orleans paper. It's a baby's awaiting adoption. A meeting of the board. They had a cutesy little headline. I'm like, oh man, they really didn't understand adoption in the early 60s. And yet I know Without a shadow of a doubt, people were trying to do the right thing all along. A year at the orphanage from birth to one year was deeply traumatic. I was catatonic and unresponsive uh, by the time I was adopted from St. Vincent's. Uh, And I still carry that inside me. It comes at me right before I go to sleep at night and I can feel it in the morning. It's still in my brain and my experience. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know that other people didn't feel that way. All I knew was that it, it, it was it was painful and it was a fire I needed to put out. And that is how I ended up, I believe, as an addict so young. Uh, I was trying to medicate the pain. I did extensive, extensive research uh, and I started to get names for my experiences. I always felt as though I were falling through space. Uh, I just, that was my description uh, uh, of what it felt like right before I went down all the way to sleep. There was a falling through space and I would wake up and be startled. And when I would wake up in the morning, that feeling of, of falling, falling, falling would still be with me. I'd get in the shower, shake it off and go through my day until that night when I went to sleep and it was there again. I just have to feel it. It hurts. I did therapy for years and years and years and every therapist always ended up saying, you need to trace your roots back and find where you come from. I'm like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to betray my adoptive family. I'm not going to, I don't want to know. That is too scary to me. I don't want to be abandoned again. I don't I have a desire to do that, I'm fine. And, you know, the answer is you're not fine. Uh, And uh, this is something you're going to have to deal with when you're ready. And the day came uh, when a therapist was able to convince me. So I started approaching Catholic charities in Louisiana and got the, you know, the official party line, which is you're you're in a closed adoption. We can't help you. I called and uh, started asking them if there was any way around this closed adoption thing. And I think a woman just kind of took pity on me. said, look, I know of someone who can work around the system. Her name is Leanne. Here's her phone number. Try her. I don't know how, uh, but she located my birth mother in a very short period of time, like two days. It was scary, and it took months and months and months and months and months of circling the phone before I could pick it up and dial it. She married a man who died, uh, but raised his children. None of them know that she had had a baby. That's me, Uh, and she wasn't going to change that now. She's elderly. She is a very wounded, 
woman. She is unwilling to look at reality around 1962, and she has severed that part of herself. She wasn't unkind. Um, she was unwilling because it would blow up her life. She's built her life on a lie. It's not. It's not uh, a Hollywood ending. I let it go. I think for me, the big deal was being brave enough to do the work, but being brave enough to go face the monsters. That gave me that that sense of dignity that I had to go earn. It was hard. I didn't want to, and I think that the courage it took to do that really, really prepared me for the rest of my life. I think it is grace if you can empathize with people who hurt you and understand that they weren't doing it to you, they were just doing it. it wasn't personal. Hell, she didn't even know me, never met me. That's freedom, I think. Uh, it begins the healing process. And something inside me said, that might be why I'm so hell-bent on telling the truth in my songs. Maybe because I come from someone whose life, I think in many ways, was less than it could have been because she built it on a lie. I don't know if this is true. It might just be a story I tell myself. It's so completely committed to being an honest songwriter uh, that maybe some of that came from this primal, instinctive thing of of knowing that it really matters to be honest. Uh, that's the only way to alchemize and transform off a lot of this uh, heaviness into something more manageable. You know, my life is working, and I don't think I could have gotten here if I wasn't a songwriter and, and willing to be honest with my lyric and my story. And now for the song written in response by performer, songwriter, and teacher Kelly McRae. Mary Gaucher in my life goes back to the fall of 2009. I had been living in New York City, just working my tail off trying to be a musician, a songwriter. And I was working a day job, as one does when one lives in New York City. And I, ha I heard the song Mercy Now came up on like a Pandora station or something. And it literally, as I'm sure it has for thousands of people, sort of like stopped everything that was going on in my head and my heart and my work. And I just thought, oh my gosh, I have to know who this person is. So I looked her up and I started reading interviews she was doing about songwriting and life and was deeply moved and thought, this is the teacher that I need. Because I knew I was stuck. At that point, I'd been in New York for a long time and just felt stuck personally and felt stuck creatively. And so my generous husband, we'd just gotten married and instead of going on a honeymoon, we he sent me, we, we sent me to a week-long songwriting workshop in Costa Rica. 
when you're in these these songwriting workshops, you know, you present a song to these incredible songwriters who who are your heroes and kind of hold your breath and you you know, your your kind of your ego is is out there on the chopping block. And I, so I played this song and Mary said, you know, Kelly, um, there's something about this song that's, that's kind of vague. Maybe, maybe that's because there's something about you that's kind of vague. <laughs> and so she made me turn, change the song from singing like I was singing to someone, like I'm gonna save them basically, to making it about me, like somebody needs to come save me. I just wept as I sang this song because I felt the truth of the prayer of that song, which was, I am so lost. I, I became sort of determined to make my life authentic, to be able to sing songs that I cared about because I wanted to live a life that I cared about and I, and I wasn't doing that. So I went home to my husband and I was like, well, congratulations. Not only did you, we not take a honeymoon, but now I want to go live in a van and sing my songs full time on the road. Well, she talks in her book about when she first hears a song by someone that she's teaching, it's often like the polite cocktail party version of a song, uh, that underneath that song is a real story that wants to be told, and that that story has conflict and has hurt. And, um, and I think that for me, that meant that I was, I was singing cocktail party versions of songs and cocktail party versions of my life, you know, that I wasn't taking the risk to be the person that, that I wanted to be, to be an artist full time, to be someone who would face the trauma that I had in my life of, for me, it was a lot about hardcore evangelical Christianity and sort of become, you know, a truer version of, I was, I was trying to stand in between two worlds and, and she could see that. I released a song called Felt Bored Jesus, and it explores what it meant to grow up in, you know, what is not really an unusual brand of evangelical Southern Christianity, but which I've come to realize is an extremely toxic and harmful one. And I, you know, I grew up in actually a very loving family. I had really loving parents, but we lived in you know, but we what we went to these churches that were so, you know, who's in and who's out. And like, if you don't believe this particular brand of Christianity, which we need you to say in these particular words, you're going to burn in hell. You know, that that's the like, that's the long and short of it. And so, you know, when I had my daughters, I realized that there was so much to unearth there for me in terms of the way that had impacted my heart and my life and my relationships. And uh, and it was through songwriting. It was through trying to write that song. I wrote like five versions of that song before I, the final one that, um, yeah, that I was able to grieve the grief of, of living in what is really just, just the opposite of what I think spirit is and God is, you know, um, and what love is. I wanted to give my daughters a different experience of, of 
what religion can be, what, what God can be, but I really didn't know what those things were myself. And I, and I'm still don't, I'm still trying to figure that out, but, but I knew what I didn't want it to be. And, and I think the church I grew up in, the culture I grew up in, looking back, I see the racism, I see um, the homophobia, I see the sexism, I see how as a woman, you know, I wasn't allowed to do certain things or say certain things. And, and I was also, a, you know, just wired from my birth to be like a good girl. I wanted to please, I wanted to get it right. And in getting it right for so many friggin' years, I got it so wrong. I felt deep down in my soul as a little girl, I think that if I decided that God loved everybody and that I, if I decided that there was no who's in and who's out, like if that's the path I chose, that, I, that the tribe was gonna leave me I was going to be left in the forest. I was not part of, you know, you essentially, you're just kicked out of the culture, you know? And the other thing they teach you is, especially as a woman, is that it's the only place you're really safe. We are the only place you're really safe. So it's like a double whammy of being told, this is the only true safe place. And we will, we will leave you behind if you try to kick against the, the established rules here. Like Mary, Kelly these days is a teacher herself. In fact, it was in one of her classes that the chorus of her new song came to her. I do something called the Young Artist Program with young people 14 to 26 in the Austin, Texas area, where we, we walk through what does it mean to tell your story in a safe way? What does it mean to take that story and choose the, the parts and the pieces that you want to be in this song that reflect your soul? What does it mean to share those songs with others? You know, And I, I also work with veterans. I'm starting a program tomorrow with with women veterans, which I've done before, called My Story, My Song. And again, very uh, inspired by Mary and her, her songs and her work with veterans. There were a couple friends within this group who were talking pretty deeply about their relationships with their mothers. And my friend Anne said at one point, she said, I know that she loved me, but she didn't love me in a way that I could feel. And it just sort of took my breath away. And so that next day, I sat down to write with Matt and he was playing this really cool thing on the guitar and I just sang that chorus. And so it's a combination of their stories and of stories from my own family and, and the resonance of Mary's book. I could see in your eyes a light beyond the pain that was given to us all but never called by its right name. So this, gener this idea of generational trauma and pain, that, um, that when we don't do the work that Mary has so clearly done, um, that I'm trying to do in my life, we pass on that, that pain. This is Kelly McRae with her song, What Do You Do?
That was What Do You Do by Kelly McRae. The song was mixed, recorded, and produced by Kelly's husband, Matt Castelline. Mary Gaucher's memoir is called Saved by a Song, and it's available wherever books are sold. Her newest album is called Dark Enough to See the Stars. If you want to learn more about the classes that Kelly teaches, you can go to songrisearts.org. 
The next episode features Questlove reading from his book, Music is History, and a brand new song written in response by Chris Pierce. Songwriter is 100% independently produced by Hook and Crook. If you want to support the musicians and the producer, please consider getting a premium subscription from Apple or Spotify, or just go to songwriterpodcast.com forward slash donate. Five-star reviews and kind words on social media or in person always help too. You can always get early access to the Songwriter Podcast at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, check out the Paste Podcast or get it wherever you get yours. Last, thanks as always to Rob Reinhardt and Acoustic Cafe. Acoustic Cafe.